Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that, much like myself, knows that garages and beers, well, these are some of the finer things in life. He is the captain. Well, of course, you add a little beer, you add a little lube, and hey, now, it's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Tonight, we are drinking Good Life by Billsburg Brewery. Garage grade a big four bottle caps. This is an IPA. Good Life is juicy, hoppy, and tropical, slightly bitter. Like me. With an ABV of 7.3%. And today's fine selection was brought to us by, first up, we have a long distance cheers to Lilia in Auckland, New Zealand. And a big shout out to Danette in Chillicothe, or also known as Chillicothe. Next up, we have Mona in St. Paul, Minnesota, who says cheers to Taco Tuesdays. And from this Romeo, we have a cheers to Juliet and Temecula Schmecula in California. Next up, cheers to our boy Hawk Dog all the way over in central Hong Kong. And last but not least, a shout out to one of our many trucker friends, Steve out of Springfield, Ohio. And a big we like your jib to all the truckers. And all of you out there can stock the shelves for next week's show by going to truecrimegarage.com and just click on that donate button. If you'd like to get your Be Good, Be Kind t-shirt, or if you would like to become a part of the Horse People Gang, go to truecrimegarage.com and pre-order your shirt today. And that's enough for the business. All right. Thank you, Captain. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Our story has a beautiful start to it, because of the setting. This week's case takes place in historic Virginia, on a scenic parkway. An area treasured by all Americans for its colonial history and natural beauty. 
This is a gorgeous 23-mile stretch of road that belongs to the National Park Service. A desirable drive, linking the three points of Virginia's historic triangle, Jamestown, Williamsburg, and Yorktown. A roadway shielded from commercial development that does not allow semi-trucks. It is toll-free and has speed limits of just 35 to 45 miles per hour. It is also popular with tourists due to the James River and York River ends of the parkway, an area that many have and will go out of their way to see and travel. But then, starting in 1986, there was great cause to avoid this area, especially after dark. Because during the course of four years, not one, not two, not even three, but four brutal and senseless double murders of young couples terrorized the Colonial Parkway region. And then, one day, just as suddenly as it all had began, the killings stopped. Now, 30 years later, the investigation into Virginia's oldest serial murder case continues, and the murderer remains at large. This is the case of the Colonial Parkway murders. Captain, I've received a lot of great emails over the past few weeks sending us high praise for some of our cases that we've covered lately. Several people saying that early 90s, mid 90s cold cases is the bread and butter of True Crime Garage. And I appreciate beer and butter. Everyone's saying that our case today, one that I'm very excited to cover. This is a case that has always fascinated and intrigued me takes place in the mid to late 80s. So we will see if we can receive such high praise for this coverage of this case of what I would call a cold case. And there's some debate on to how cold this case and these cases actually are. And we'll certainly get into that before we're through. But there's what's great about this case. There's been a lot of renewed interest in this case. And I think it's because of the 30 year anniversary. Mm-hmm. We have four double homicides. The first that took place in 1986, the second in 87, then 88 and 89. And so what we've seen the last few years is a renewed interest in each one of these cases and the Colonial Parkway murders as a whole. And we will continue to see that this year and next year as well. Now, before we get into these cases that make up the Colonial Parkway murders, we need to get a little background on the parkway itself. Understanding the environment of the Colonial Parkway is crucial to the cases we are going to discuss. Construction began on the Colonial Parkway in 1930, and it was completed in portions and would be a project that would take over 25 years. The parkway was designed to follow the York and James Rivers, which feed into the Atlantic Ocean. On April 27, 1957, the Colonial Parkway opened for traffic along the entire route between Yorktown and Jamestown. The scenic 23-mile parkway connects three of the most historic spots in our great country, Yorktown on the York River, where George Washington beat the Redcoats, also Williamsburg, which is Virginia's colonial capital, and Jamestown on the James River, where the English settlers first founded colonies way back in 1607. It is part of the National Park Service's Colonial National Historic Park, 
which is a 10,000 acre federal park. The parkway is windy and curvy with low overpasses. No commercial vehicles or structures are on the parkway. It is a three lane road. The center lane is for passing only. The tree shaded passage is punctuated with scenic pull offs and picnic areas. And both tourists and locals enjoy these recreational areas during the day to read, picnic, exercise, or just enjoy the Virginia's historic culture. Deer and other wildlife are often visible on the parkway's fringes, but at night, we have overhanging trees that cover the road, and this makes it extremely dark out there. As it was described in one article, there are no street lights, no call boxes, no fast food restaurants or convenience stores where a driver might find refuge in case of a breakdown. So once it's dark, the pull-offs along the parkway attract a different crowd. Kids go there to party, lovers meet for a nighttime tryst, or who knows what else goes on there after dark. A lot of sucking. In the 1980s, these areas had a reputation among authorities as being sites for hookups, illegal drugs, and underage drinking. At any given time in the park, two patrol rangers are on duty. The rangers drive the parkway until midnight most nights and other nights all night long. How many park rangers? Two. Okay. At nighttime, it's patrolled by two. Because this is a pretty big park. Well, it's a 23-mile stretch of road. Mm -hmm. And the other thing here, though, there's not a lot of access points to get on or off of this 23-mile stretch. Mm Mm-hmm. And what my thought is here is that you probably have, you have two guys patrolling it throughout the night, but you probably have a dispatcher that's on, on call as well, or, or, or manning the phones, let's say, right? who, if there were a call, could then dispatch a ranger to your location. Now, keep in mind, though, there's no call boxes, and this is the 1980s. We're not, we're not calling people on cell phones if we break down. Yeah, unless you're Doc Brown or Marty McFly. Well, technically, the park itself closes at sunset, but the parkway obviously stays open to traffic overnight. Mm -hmm. Some of the picnic areas are closed in the winter months, and some pull-offs have a 20-minute parking limit between the hours of 6 a.m. and 10 p.m., but are actually closed after 10 p.m., so you're not supposed to be on those things after dark. The parkway falls under the ranger's jurisdiction because it is federal land owned by the National Park Service. So when a serious crime is committed, the York County Sheriff's Department is called in with police from neighboring locales assisting, but the FBI may also become involved in investigations. The most common offenses in the park are violations of driving and liquor laws, as one would expect. To give you a better idea, the combined 1988 and 1989 statistics show that there were just over 2,400 traffic offenses. 39 drunken driving charges, 92 vehicle accidents where there was damage to vehicles, 11 with personal injuries, one fatality, and five hit and runs. There were also two alcohol-related accidents during the course of those two years. One additional aspect of the parkway that is intriguing, surrounding it are the, the Cheatham Annex Naval Base, and we also have the Yorktown Naval Weapons Station. Also nearby is Camp Perry, which is a compound owned by the Defense Department where the CIA operates secret training missions. Now let's get to 1986, Captain. So back in 1986, Rebecca Ann Dorsky, 
is 21 years old. She's from Poughkeepsie, New York, and a senior at William & Mary, a prestigious liberal arts college located in Williamsburg, Virginia. Yeah. She transferred there from another school after two years and was majoring in business management. She went by the nickname of Becky and was the youngest of five. She was very athletic, excelling at softball, among other sports, and had studied abroad in high school. Kathleen Thomas, age 27, was from Lowell, Massachusetts. Well, Kathy, as she was known, had attended the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis. She was actually one of the first women to graduate from the academy. In fact, Kathy, her brother, and father were the first father-daughter-son family to graduate from Annapolis. That's cool. Yeah. Kathy followed in the footsteps of her father, who was a career naval officer. Her family describes her as a trailblazer. Obviously, she's one of the first women to graduate from the Naval Academy. Uh, But they describe her as loving life and excelled at whatever she wanted to do. After graduation, Kathy had served five years in the Navy as a protocol officer at Atlantic Fleet Headquarters in Norfolk, Virginia. She had been discharged from the Navy earlier in 1986 and was now working as a stockbroker at Brokers Securities Incorporated. This is in Virginia Beach. She was athletic and trained in martial arts. Thursday night, October 9th, 1986, was the start of the five-day Columbus Day holiday weekend for the College of William and Mary. And Kathy was at the college visiting Becky as she did each Thursday evening. What was not known to everyone at the school was that Kathy and Becky were in a romantic relationship and had been dating for about six months. This was Virginia in the 80s and a lesbian couple This is not generally considered socially acceptable at this time. Becky was Kathy's second steady girlfriend, and the two actually had been introduced by Kathy's ex. Yeah, but I think they were dating at the time. What's that? I think they were dating at the time, and, and that's how they met. Okay. Most of Kathy's family knew about her sexuality and her relationship with Becky. In fact, Kathy's brothers and parents were expecting to meet Becky for the first time over Thanksgiving. Becky's family, however, did not know that she was a lesbian. Becky was scheduled to return home to Poughkeepsie for the holiday break. Her car was packed up and ready to go. She had told her parents that she planned to stop and visit friends on the way home to New York. So she might not arrive until Sunday. Now, Kathy was visiting Becky at the college on that Thursday night, October 9th. Her apartment was an hour's drive away. Becky and Kathy were seen in the computer lab at William and Mary. They left the lab around 9 PM and left the campus at this time as well, driving Kathy's car because the two were pretty much forced because of the times to keep their relationship on the down low. They often would take a drive. You know, they would go off campus, find somewhere that they could be alone. Now, friends of theirs said that they would on occasion find a secluded spot along the Colonial Parkway. On Saturday, October 11th, Becky's friends whom she had intended to visit on Friday and Saturday became alarmed when she never arrived. And so they called the police in Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania, but nothing came of these calls. So these calls, they're not really calling to report her as missing, but more so of an inquiry, you know, more of a where is she call than we know she is missing call. We don't know whether 
anyone at Kathy's job reported that she did not show up for work on that Friday. What we do know is that neither woman was reported missing. Then on Sunday, October 12th, 1986, around 5.30 p.m., a jogger was running on the banks of the York River along the Colonial Parkway near Yorktown. This part of the parkway is on the grounds of the United States Naval Supply Center. It's just 10 miles east of the William and Mary campus. This is federal property. Right. This jogger spotted Kathy's 1980 white Honda Civic in the bushes. The car was found perched at a 45-degree angle front end down in the bramble-covered embankment between a pull-off spot and the York River, about 35 feet from the roadway. The Honda wasn't visible from the road, but the jogger was running on the river embankment and could see areas where passing cars could not. The jogger, assuming that the Honda had been in an accident, alerted the park rangers who patrolled the parkway. Rescuers arrived and broke the rear hatchback window of the car to gain access to the two people that they could see inside the car, hoping that they were still alive. So we have rangers showing up to the scene. They find this car in the bushes, nose down practically. One of the rangers, for some reason, believes that these individuals could still be alive. It's not reported which ranger decided to break the hatchback window. Right. It's a little bit unclear, and that might be important later, and we'll get into that. But that will be of some significance. Regardless, the responders worked extremely hard to get into that car. Sadly, what they found inside was gruesome. Not only were the two passengers inside dead, but they could tell immediately that they were looking at a double homicide. Park rangers called the local field office of the FBI and waited for the feds to arrive. A short time later, the FBI investigators climbed down the embankment to the car. Once they saw the scene inside, they photographed the car's location and positioning, and then they had a wrecker tow the car back up to, to the pull-off area near the road. Now, there was some debate whether they should do this because it's going to disturb their crime scene. But the thought was that they thought by this point it had been disturbed enough and that they weren't going to be able to examine the car in the manner that they wanted to. So they had to kind of roll the dice and say, yep, let's have the tow truck pull this thing up and out of the bushes so we can look at it, take a good look at it. So what evidence was found by the FBI? Well, they found Kathy's body crumpled in the hatchback section of the car. Becky's body was in the back seat with her legs diagonally pointing to the front seats with one foot wedged between the door and the front seat. Both women were fully clothed, and there was no immediate sign of any sexual assault. Investigators looked for driver's licenses to try to identify the victims. Right. Both Becky and Kathy's purses were found under the seats, but Kathy's wallet was on the floor and out of her purse. Both women's wallets contained money. A ring was still on Kathy's finger, and investigators noted that it did not look like they had been robbed. The bodies were taken to the state medical examiner's office. The car was a mess with broken glass from the shattered back window. There were leaves and there were, there were blood inside the vehicle. But a strange thing, there was not enough blood, according to investigators. There should have been more, meaning it didn't look like the women had been killed inside the car. Right. They've been killed elsewhere and then placed inside the car. Well, yeah. because 
they, you know, their throats were slit. Yes. The, the FBI shipped the Honda to the FBI lab in Washington, where it was examined using the latest technology at the time. According to Bill Thomas, this is Kathy's brother who has become a victim's advocate in this case. And in my opinion, a 100% expert in this case, he says the Honda's driver's side window was found in the rolled down position. Um, I guess a, a, approximately 150 partial fingerprints were found inside the car. Unfortunately, though, the breaking of the hatchback's rear window by rescuers destroyed any fingerprints the killer or killers could have left when closing the hatch on Kathy's, you know, after placing Kathy's body in that section of the car. Right. So the driver's side windows completely rolled down. According to the brother, according to her brother, there are other reports that, that state that the window was up. And, and her ID is the one that's found outside of her purse. Uh, that's a good question, Captain. I have in my notes that her her wallet was found on the floor outside of her purse. I do not know the, the specifics regarding her ID. Okay, so what it seems to me is that they pull over off the parkway into a spot that we're going to call a lover's lane, right? Yeah. And they're going to do a little hanky-panky. Yeah. <laughs> and at some point, what it seems like is that somebody approached them uh, it doesn't look like there's any like wreckage to the vehicles. So they weren't hit. It doesn't look like anybody hit the car. So it seems very that whoever approached them was friendly at the time of the approachment. Yeah. If that makes any sense. And then at some point, the driver's side window gets rolled down. Maybe it was rolled down before the person approached them. Maybe it wasn't. But now we have these two. It's almost like they got out their information to show somebody mm -hmm. like a police officer or a park ranger or somebody pretending to be a, a law enforcement. Well, and that has always been one of the huge questions regarding this double homicide. Were the two ladies parked and then approached by a vehicle or were they followed to that location? Now, yeah, were they pulled over? Yeah. Well, the autopsy reports estimate that Becky and Kathy had likely been killed sometime between 9.30 p.m. on October 9th and midnight on October 10th. So mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a big window. And I think the other thing here that, that makes this tricky is the large window of the time that they were last known to have been seen on the William and Mary campus to when their bodies are found on that Sunday. I mean, we're talking days later. Mm -hmm. So there is some question as to where was the actual last sighting of these two individuals. And one being that there was a, a sighting of two women at the York pub. This is an area that would be near, you know, they would have went past the York pub to have gone from William and Mary to where they were eventually found. Mm -hmm. The York pub would be a place that it was more of a restaurant than a bar, but people would go there to get something to eat, maybe have a beer or two while they're there. There was thought that the last meal that they ate contained hamburger. Uh -huh. Um, and that would go along with having been at the York pub. However, of those site of those sightings, those are kind of unconfirmed sightings of the two ladies. So if we go by the coroner's estimation of as early as nine 30 PM, keep in mind, 
This area that they were found is about 10 miles away from the campus that they left around nine o'clock, you know, so this could have been a very short time period. And as you mentioned, they could have been pulled over by somebody that was following them or they parked there to talk or whatever for a while. And somebody approaches the vehicle. And there is a possibility, a small possibility that they went out there to meet somebody. We have no evidence of that, but there, that is a possibility. Some more evidence, Captain. The medical examiner found that Kathy and Becky's hands had been bound and they had both been strangled with nylon rope. Their hands had been untied at some point and the rope had been taken away by the killer since it was not fi- found at the scene later. But rope burns had been left on the victim's wrist and necks. And later investigators would find a three inch piece of rope that was embedded in the back of Kathy's neck. Although both women were strangled, their throats had been slit as well beyond the ear to ear. Kathy so severely that when her body was removed from the car, law enforcement officers could see down her windpipe. She was nearly decapitated. Now the webbed area between Kathy's right hand at the the thumb and pointer finger area was ripped and there was also bruising to this hand as if she had put up a bit of a struggle or had been clawing at the rope around her neck. She had a clump of hair in her hand, but otherwise the women showed few defensive wounds, which both families, you know, we gave a a fair description of both of these ladies, uh, both being tough, one having completed the Navy Academy, both being athletic both families found it extremely strange that the two didn't put up a bigger fight. Right, which makes you wonder, did they meet somebody out there that they knew or did the person that approached them, if it was you know law enforcement or somebody pretending to be in law enforcement, it'd be a lot easier for this killer to control his victims. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active.
All right, we're back. Cheers. Cheers, Captain. And I apologize for going through the brutality of this crime, but there's no way around it. There there are things, and I believe clues within what had happened to these ladies and what was done by the perpetrator or perpetrators at this crime scene. Yeah, this is not a podcast about soccer. Right. So we have we have some issues here, Captain. Because, like I said, the investigators were shocked at the brutality of this crime. They say that it was a classic example of overkill, maybe suggesting that it was somebody that knew them and had hatred for one, at least one of these victims. Mm-hmm. Um, but both women were tied up. And this is a tricky thing because this might indicate the possibility of two perpetrators. And the families of both of these women have always wondered this because they had wondered why would the other sit there and wait as the single perpetrator tied up the other woman move and do something. And I'm going to slit her throat. Right. I get it. I get it. Not moving. I get it. Love that person. You're not moving. I no, I get that. But there's, there's a likelihood that both hands on the perpetrator would be busy at some point. And the thought, the, the thing that the families keep shouting out is how tough these two individuals were and their belief that they would fight. Now, Kathy's car and the women's bodies, they had been doused in diesel fuel. Now, some earlier reports state that it was kerosene and, and this was very tricky to try to decipher. Most reports state diesel fuel. Some report kerosene. I even heard an interview with one of the investigators that investigated this crime and he kind of flip-flops back and forth during the course of this interview, and he even mentions diesel fuel, but he also mentions kerosene. So mm-hmm. I was hoping to get some clarification from him regarding this, and I don't think we have that. Like I said, most reports state diesel fuel, so we will roll with that. Apparently, the perpetrator, the killer or killers, had attempted to light the car on fire. Several matches were found at the top of the embankment. The car had been put into neutral and pushed down the hill toward the river where it became lodged in the bushes. Diesel fuel apparently does not ignite. You know, it burns hotter than gasoline does, but it has a much higher ignition point than gasoline does. So whoever tried to light this car on fire either didn't know that or at the very least they were unsuccessful. They're out there out in the woods using matches trying to light this vehicle on fire. So the investigators found it very puzzling that the murderer had access to diesel fuel, meaning that he must have brought it to the scene with him because diesel fuel is not extremely common. It's not something that, you know, regular motorists drive around within the trunk of their vehicle or in the bed of their truck. So just so I'm following this correctly, he, he takes these two individuals out of the car, ties them up, strangles them with the rope. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're dead. Maybe they're not dead. Maybe the, maybe the suspect doesn't know if they are. So then cuts their throat, puts them back in the car. That's why there would be less blood in the car because they were cut outside of the vehicle. Correct. Put back into the car and then doused in diesel fuel. It doesn't light because it doesn't, it has a higher lighting ignition point. Mm hmm pushes the car down. So almost like the fire, I couldn't get it to, you know, the evidence would be burned away. Fingerprints, all that stuff would be burned away. But now 
that it's not going to be burned away. I'm going to push the car closer to the water. Well, and thank you for saying that because the thing here is one thing I always wondered about this case. So before I get into, into this whole thing here, just to touch upon something, the, yes, the detective surmised that the actual murders happened outside of the car for several reasons. One, there should have been more blood inside of the car. And two, a Honda Civic hatchback is a very small car. So it would have been very difficult for these murders to take place inside of that small confined space. So moving on to the burning of the vehicle and then trying to push it down into the river. You know, years ago when I looked into this case, I had always questioned their findings of the statement that the car was put into neutral lit on fire, and then pushed down the embankment. I always thought that maybe there was a chance that the vehicle was pushed down the embankment, and when it got caught in the bushes, the killer then goes, oh, crap, my attempt at concealing this vehicle by pushing it down into the river didn't work out, so now I'm going to burn it. Because the burning of the vehicle seems strange to me. We described how dark this place would have been. And we do know that it is being patrolled, but it's not heavily patrolled, right? Right. Doesn't a fire just like call screaming attention to your crime scene, to the, the murders that actually the victims having sat there and the car having sat there for the possibility of two or three days? Well, it might cause attention. It's going to cause a lot of attention at night. Right. Not so much attention during the day. The thing here is, after having studied this further, I think that they were right and not necessarily just because the matches, the matches that were attempted to have been used were found up by the roadway. I think they're right because one thing I didn't know before was that the interior of the car, as well as the bodies of the two victims had been doused in the same fuel in that diesel fuel. And what I mean by that is we saw how much the Rangers struggled to get into the vehicle after it was lodged in the bushes. The killer would have had the same problem and therefore it would have been extremely difficult for him to douse the female victims as well as the interior of the vehicle with this diesel fuel after having become lodged in the bushes. So I think the detectives are spot on with their speculation of yes, these murders occurred outside of the vehicle. The victims were then placed inside the vehicle. The vehicle set on fire and then the attempt of pushing it down the embankment. Well, it's weird too because it seems like the manner in which they were killed and then the manner in which somebody tried to cover this up, it seems very amateurish. It does, and it's weird in a way that, like you had mentioned, if, if you're tying up two people and you're a lone perpetrator... And your way of controlling the victims and keeping them together is by threatening the lives of one of them. Well, then that means you have some means of threatening them. We know that a knife was brought to the scene because the throats were slit, right? And one could guess maybe a, a gun was used because as you had mentioned, maybe they thought a person of authority was approaching their vehicle that night or had right. pulled them over this being a park ranger or a police officer. But as any investigator will explain, once we're face to face, if I have a gun and you don't, I'm somebody of authority, whether I have a badge or not. Mm -hmm. And so if in fact this killer, we know that brought the knife at some point there, they have diesel fuel there. They have rope there with them. 
and possibly a gun as well. I mean, how many weapons? This seems like a somebody goes out in the middle of the night and brings everything they can think of to bring with them to make sure, hey, I'm going to kill somebody tonight and there's nothing that's going to stop me. Yeah, it's like a Fisher-Price, my first murder kit. Well, the murders were so vicious that at the time, the investigators, they had to assume that it was personal. So they started looking into everyone in Kathy and Becky's lives, talking to their friends and families and and pursuing multiple leads. Oh, and yeah, and ex-relationships. Well, initially, the entire 50-agent Norfolk FBI office worked this case, and park rangers even stopped drivers on the parkway and asked them if they had seen anyone or anything uh, that could be related to this investigation. The York River near the scene was dragged. Uh, Similar cases in other regions were searched for. Kathy's ex, her name is Jolene, was thoroughly investigated, and none of this panned out. None of it really led anywhere. There were so many unanswered questions. And she was highly suspect for a while because she was seen with them on the last day that they were seen and that she also had a class with her ex. So they really kind of narrowed <laughs> in on her and try to try to shake her, you know, and, and just nothing came up. Well, it. you know what was was interesting was I, I read a bunch of interviews with Kathy's circle of friends, including her ex that were conducted years and years later. And one thing that they all kind of pointed out was they believe that Jolene was considered a suspect because one, as you stated that there seemed to be, it seemed to be that this new relationship started right after that old relationship had ended. And what all of her friends would later say in these interviews is that they don't think that in the 1980s, that the FBI really understood a lesbian relationship and that they couldn't kind of wrap their heads around it. And therefore they, they really honed in on this Jolene person where all of the Kathy's friends all along had always said there was nothing there that that relationship was over. And, and, and what was even uh, more interesting was that Jolene had introduced Kathy to Becky. Yeah. But see, that's where the stories crisscross as some people say, that after the relationship ended is when she said, hey, you might like Kathy. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of the story is that during why they're dating is when she met Kathy. And so it's almost like she took her away. And so I just think it's just uh, rumors. Well, no, I'm going off of the people that knew the three of these the most. Right. I'm just saying for years that was one of the rumors was that it had to be the ex because Uh, she took her away from her. Yeah. Well, like I said, so many unanswered questions in this. Um, The things that, uh, here's some things that I try to wrap my head around when talking about this. One, this is a long, drawn-out double killing. So how did the suspect have time to do this? This is outside of the car, in a public spot, uh, seemingly without the fear of detection. So that's one question. And then if he had planned to burn the car, why did he remove the bindings holding the girls? You know, and and he cut the rope from Kathy's neck, but he left a three inch piece of this. That was one question I had going into it. And I think some of the research I did explained that answer to me. Once in a while, we get some answers. The investigator, one of the investigators pointed out that it's his opinion that the three inch piece of rope was left there on accident 
that the killer had slit the throat while the neck was still tied. Right. So that makes some clarification there. And then you also have to wonder, was there a chance that the killer killed them somewhere else entirely and then drove the car with the bodies in the back of the car to the abandon to abandon it along the parkway? That's very possible as well. The other strange thing here, Captain. And the, the tough thing here is because it's outside, because it's in, you know, there's a grassy area and stuff. And so many days later, do we find the vehicle and the bodies? That evidence could, you know, if it rains, you know, a lot of the evidence can leave the scene. Well, and what's the motive? I think this is another reason why they look at the inner circles, because what's the motive? There was no robbery and there was no sexual assault. Now, let's move forward in our timeline to almost a year later. We have David Nobling. He is 20 years old and lives in Hampton, Virginia. David's family say he is someone who would do anything to help out his friends and family. He, he is plain and simple, just a nice guy. Mm-hmm. He and Robin, Robin is only 14 years old. They had met earlier that day. This is Saturday, September 19th. 1987 and just put this out there i've seen this case covered by several things and and nobody ever points out that that's a little odd we have a 20 year old hanging out with a 14 year old i know it's in the 80s but the times were not that much different i find it a little strange they met when a group of friends including david's brother michael and their younger cousin went to an arcade in newport robin liked older boys Uh, She was smart and even wise for her young age. She was involved in peer counseling and David had just learned that his girlfriend at the time was pregnant. There's some talk if it was his ex-girlfriend or his current girlfriend, but the two of them spent some time that evening talking later. David drove home. He drove the whole group home after dropping Robin off at her house around 11 PM. David and his brother went home. They ordered pizza and they watched TV. We don't know for sure what transpired between David and Robin during that short time that they had met, but later investigators and both families guessed that the two had planned to meet up. So Robin took off to meet him. David left his family's home around midnight, not telling Michael where he was going. David was known to drive out to a place called Ragged Island. This is a Ragged Island wildlife refuge in his black Ford pickup. Ragged Island was a secluded marshy wildlife refuge, which was known as a teen hangout and a party spot. Robin and David's families noticed that they were missing the next day. And apparently they must have had some kind of discussion between the two families because after they pieced this together, the families decided that the two must have gone off together. Um, Robin had run away before. Apparently her mother worked nights. So I don't know if she was just waiting for her mother to leave for work. And then she was free to leave the house and go do whatever she wanted to do, hang out with, with, uh, David or whatever, you know, but both families acknowledged that the two possibly could have quote hooked up despite the age difference. Early Monday morning, a sheriff's deputy spotted David's Ford Ranger pickup in the parking lot at the wildlife refuge at the southern foot of the James River Bridge. This is not a location on the Colonial Parkway, but this is the opposite side of the James River. Now, the driver's side door was open. The keys were in the ignition. The engine was not running, but the wipers were still on, and the truck's radio was blaring. 
Some sources indicate that the driver's side window was partially open. The deputy saw clothes strewn about the cab of the truck, which turned out to be Robin and David's underwear and some shoes. They also found a wallet on the dashboard. Despite this ominous scene, though, the deputy figured the driver had just stepped away and he turned the ignition to off. Right. Robin's family reported her absence later that day, and the connection was made to the truck that had been found on Ragged Island, which was towed away by county officials. Family members noted that Robin's purse was not found in the truck. Organized searches began with both officials and family members searching in two days of heavy rain. David's family says they knew as soon as the truck was found that something was terribly wrong. His truck was his pride and joy, and he would never have left it with the keys still in it for anyone to steal. There was some thought that the truck had been driven by somebody else. For one thing, David always parked the truck in reverse, so it was facing out of the parking spot. The truck was found nose in, and David and his brother had rigged the truck so that the keys did not need to be in the ignition to have the radio on, but in this case... The radio was on and the keys were found in the ignition. Right. So two days later on September 22nd, David's stepfather, he was searching on Ragged Island's shores a mile into the reserve for any sign of his stepson when a nearby jogger named Lewis Ford spotted what he thought was just a pile of clothes. Instead, it turned out to be the body of Robin Edwards, who had been shot in the back of the head. Several reports say that her jeans were undone and her bra was pushed up, although it wasn't clear if this was done by water, the killer, or weather, or whatever. Right. You know, maybe she could have been interrupted during the state of, some kind of state of undress. Yeah, maybe in a state of pre-coitus. Soon afterwards, Carl found David shirtless a few dozen yards away at the base of an embankment. David had also been shot once in the shoulder and once in the back of the head. The caliber of gun used has never been released to the public, although I did hear one investigator many years later going off of memory saying it might have been a 38. Investigators guessed that David had tried to make a run for it toward the woods and had been brought down with the shoulder shot and then executed. It looked to authorities as though the young pair had died between 12.30 a.m. and 5.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. A group of teens who had been partying at the parking lot told police that when they left at 2 a.m., David's truck was not there yet. Now, we know from reports, right, comes out years later that it's believed that Robin had had sex before she died. But in those days, DNA testing was not available to determine who she had sex with. What was strange was that David and Robin were found about a mile from the truck. You know, so did they walk the mile in the pitch black in the middle of the night to the river's edge or had someone possibly driven them to within 200 yards of the shore where you could pull over, shoot them, and then drive the truck back to where it was later found? Yeah, well, let's go into detail this again. So the one, somebody comes up on them. They're in the truck. Mm-hmm. they get them out of the truck, take them about a mile away, kill them, leave the scene. Yeah. There's also the possibility that they're out of the truck for whatever reason 
we maybe the truck wasn't in that spot. Trucks in a different location. Maybe they're not that far away from the truck, mm-hmm. but they're outside of the truck for whatever reason. This murderer comes up on them, kills them there. The murderer moves the truck. Right. Right. So that would be option two. Yep. And then the other option is what you said is that the murderer took them out a mile in the truck, killed them and then moved the truck. Possibility. Yeah. Yeah. The thing here though, that the families have questioned regarding them being outside of the truck. uh, One being that, the families both seem to think that the two of them would have went there for one of two reasons, either to party, you know, to do, to do drugs and drink or to hook up or both. And what the families have often said regarding this is given the weather that night and given how cold it was that evening, it had rained quite a bit that day as well. Both families believe that whatever they went there to do, mm-hmm. especially if it was one of those two reasons or both, that they would have done that inside the truck. So we have a situation where it it seems like the family believes that if they were approached by somebody, they were probably sitting in the truck when approached. Well, it's so strange to me. The door was found open. Yeah. So it's strange. Well, you know what I actually think went down and I, and I don't, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to know where they were killed or, or how they were approached by their eventual killer. But I think what took place is this. I actually think they were killed elsewhere out away from the truck and away from where they were eventually found. I think that whoever shot them, killed them, and then attempted to dump their bodies in the river where they were later washed ashore. And I think that the killer, after having dumped the bodies, left the truck with the keys in it in the parking lot with the door open and the radio on as a a way to maybe entice somebody to steal the truck. Could you imagine if you are out in the middle of this wildlife refuge and you shoot two people, you're able to successfully place their bodies in the river, which the water takes them away. And then you place their truck in a place where it gets stolen and then maybe moved even States away. You're likely are not going to get caught for that double homicide. Yeah. I see what you're saying, but I don't think that this killer is that sophisticated when Robin and David were found, no one connected the case to the murders of Kathy and Becky. For one thing, David and Robin were not found along the parkway. Ragged Island is nearly 30 miles South of the parkway and the MOs were not the same. And the manner of death was completely different. We have strangulation in the throat slitting in the first one, and then gunshots in the second, the sheriff investigating along with the state police stated that they had two suspects in this particular case, but were having difficulty gathering evidence to bring them to justice. We do know that the sheriff had a theory that a man named Sammy reader may have been involved. Apparently he had failed a polygraph and had admitted to taking money um, from David's wallet that was found inside of his truck. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing here is, Sammy reader would give multiple stories to the sheriff's department regarding what went down that evening. In one story, he states that, um, he saw the two exit the truck and they walked down to the beach and that's when he approached the truck and kind of went through it to see what he could find. 
while they were away. And another story, he says that they went off into the bushes and same thing occurred. He went into the truck to see what he could find and took money from the wallet. So, so we know he's a thief and we know he's a liar. Well, and by his own accord, he was inside the vehicle at some point. You wonder, is he the person that left the door open? Well, if you need to explain away fingerprints, you just did. If you can convince law enforcement that you didn't kill these two, but just in fact stole money from them, given the opportunity. Yeah. So you're, you're a liar, you're a thief and you were born in a barn. Well, the third story and forgive me, captain, because I don't know the order in which these stories were delivered. I do know that there were three different stories given to police during the course of questioning Mm -hmm. and they all varied slightly. Well, one of the stories is that there were other people in this area hanging out and partying. I don't know if these were, I imagine it would be people similar in age to Robin and to David, you know, Mm -hmm. teens, early twenties, hanging out and partying. The problem with that though, is investigators sought that angle and they couldn't find anybody else that would admit to having been in the area that night. So the first murders take place in 1986. The second, the double homicide, the second double homicide happens in 87, but now that's 30 some miles away from the parkway. But now we're going to have another murder in 88. Keith call and Sandy Haley were on a first date on September. Keith call and Sandy Haley were on a first date on Saturday, April 9th, 1988, they both were students at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, where they were classmates. Sandy was an 18-year-old freshman who modeled and taught high school gymnastics as she entered college. Keith was 20 years old, and his friends and family describe him as a, quote, computer geek in a time way before computers were popular. Well, he was going to school for computer science, something you know a lot about. Keith had borrowed a shirt from his brother that day so he could look good for his date. Uh, I guess they attended a party at the University Square Apartments, although they had told Sandy's mom that they were going to go to a movie. Of course. Well, they're, you know. That's typical teenager crap, right? 20 and 18. Yeah, yeah. You go and you have a few drinks and you tell everybody else you're going to the movies. We're going to the library. Both Sandy and Keith were seen at the party. Uh, they were seen talking to other people though. And it, it actually didn't look like the date was going well to other people. The two seemed to be getting along, but they weren't really, there didn't seem to be any romantic spark. Well, right. But he's a computer geek, so he might have some social flaws. Uh, I think that they were, both of them actually were out of recent relationships. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think both of them at some point had told people at the party that, uh, you know, Hey, Keith's a nice guy, but I kind of miss so-and-so. And I think, you know, Keith probably said the same thing, you know, Sandy's really nice girl, super cool, but you know, I'd rather kind of be back in my relationship. Yeah. I went on a date like that one time we went to a coffee shop and we just got coffee and we decided to walk down the main street of Ohio state campus. And after two hours, (laughs) talking about my ex and her talking about her ex it was like okay well this is more of a therapy session than it was a date right right and in this it doesn't look like anything bad was going on just like i said no romantic spark seemed to be happening it seemed like the two of them were more interested in hanging out separately at this party and talking to their 
different cliques or their different friends there. So friends say that the two left the party before 2 a.m. And this yeah, is roughly about 1.30. Yeah, because, well, Sandy lived at home and her curfew was 2 a.m. So they would have left there with enough time to get her home to meet her curfew. And this is pretty late when you consider the time frame, you know, being 88. On Sunday morning around 7 a.m., Keith's father was driving to work and saw his son's red 1982 Toyota Celica parked at the small York River Overlook along the Colonial Parkway. The vehicle was unoccupied. Mm -hmm. This was between one and three miles from the location of Kathy and Becky, the first victims that were found 18 months earlier. So his father stopped, looked inside. Nothing seemed to be out of place. He shouted several times for his son, but you know, no Keith. So he decided to continue along his way. He was driving to work at 9 a.m. A park ranger reported the vehicle as abandoned. uh, Rangers waited until Monday to call the FBI who had jurisdiction because of the parkways federal designation. The car was impounded by then Sandy and Keith had been reported missing. Okay. So I know that seems a little confusing, but basically what we have is these two individuals leave the party. They've were not spotted all of the next day. They're unheard from Mm -hmm. first. His father finds the vehicle abandoned. Then later the Rangers report it as abandoned. Mm -hmm. They have it impounded but at some point, authorities are going to make the connection between this abandoned vehicle and then the two that had been reported missing. So Rangers reported that when they found the Celica, the driver's door was open, the windows were down, and Keith's car keys were in the ignition. Some reports say that the keys were on the seat, but most in the ignition. Well, and this is so strange, too, because the father finds it before the park rangers find it. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't shut the door or maybe he does shut the door and then it's opened by somebody else later. Um, you're getting into an area that's, that's very interesting regarding this case because the description that Keith's father gives of the vehicle is vastly different than the description that the Rangers give. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those sad moments in a case that, and it's not realized until many, many years later. So myself was in this group as well, but, but mainly Keith's father is the one that I want to talk about here. When Keith's father found the car, he said that the way that the thing looked to him was that the two had went there parked and were hanging out and just had gotten out of the car at some point and went off somewhere. And when he shouted and called for his son's name and his son never showed up, he just assumed that the two were off, let's say, having a good time, okay? And he, heading to work, decided to continue on. When he found the vehicle, like I said, it was described completely different the way that the Rangers would later describe it. And the thought that, that had been shared by Keith's family and the general public for many, many years was that holy crap, did did his father stumble stumble upon this vehicle and then at some point the killer returned to return items belonging to the two to the vehicle? Mm-hmm. Because when he found the vehicle, it seemed to be practically empty. And um, I can't remember if he saw the keys or not. I think he did see the keys. But 
there apparently there were no clothing. There was no clothing found in the car. He didn't see any or claims he didn't see any. When the park rangers come to find it, they find a lot of clothing, almost all of each person's clothing. Well, we would learn the truth of that. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by this is, like I said, for many, many years, a lot of people believed there was a chance that the killer had returned to the vehicle in that short window of time between when Keith's father had found it and then later the Rangers find it. Mm-hmm. What we would learn, the, the Rangers would later come out and admit to this. And this is quite embarrassing on their end. What had happened was they had found the vehicle before Keith's father made it to the car. Right. They collected items that were found inside the vehicle and took them with them. Later, they realized that this car was not just abandoned. It was connected to these missing persons. Mm -hmm. So what they ended up doing is the put in the items back. They put them back in and and return the vehicle to how going off of memory as to how they had originally found it. Yeah. Awkward. Well, the sad thing here is Keith's father. You know, this information didn't come out until many, many years later. And I don't have it here in my notes, Captain, but I believe it wasn't until 2007 or 2009. So we're talking 18, maybe 20 years later that this information comes out. And Keith's father passes away, never having known the truth and never understanding why he found the vehicle in one state. And very shortly after, the Rangers claim that it was in a different state. Right. So... But so when they do find this and they know that these individuals are missing, they start searching, right? Mm-hmm. And then they once they can't find these individuals, they start thinking that they they might be in the water. Correct? Yeah, there was a, a thought, and I kind of you hear the the tone that I changed to there. Mm-hmm. the The running theory that the Rangers had was that the two decided to take off their clothes, leave the clothes in the vehicle Mm -hmm. and then go down to the water to go skinny dipping. Yeah. Because when you're on a bad date, that's something you do. That's usually where that leads. Hey, you want to see my twig and berries and go for a dip? Sure. Well, there's a lot of problems with that and, and we got too much to cover for me to go through all of the issues with that. But let's talk about what was found in the vehicle. Okay, so we said that the keys were found in the ignition or on the seat. Now, we also have Keith's wallet that was found in the back seat with $12 inside of it. And a watch and eyeglasses were on the dashboard. All of Keith's clothing and shoes were found scattered inside of the car. Mm -hmm. And most of Sandy's clothing, including one shoe and her bra, were found inside the car. Sandy's purse was in the car, but her wallet was missing. Two empty beer cans were in the back. Some reports indicate that the glove box was open. The clothes in the car led Rangers to believe that for some reason the couple had decided to go skinny dipping. Okay, let's touch on this just for a second. Mm-hmm. Never mind that it's 2 a.m. The temperature that night in April was was 40-some degrees. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who goes swimming in f- Polar Bear Club, right? Shrinkage. Um, and the overlook was up high on the embankment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's the big problem that the family had initially with this theory. They said, look, it's too cold. And second of all, it doesn't make any sense that the two would strip down to nothing and then walk over a half a mile down the road to go skinny dipping 
in the middle of the night. So furthermore, is Sandy naked except for one shoe? You know what I mean? Is she walking down the street in one shoe half a mile to get to this location? Mm -hmm. Uh, This theory by the Rangers was, uh, was abandoned fairly quickly. Um, once the FBI stepped in and yeah. once the family imagine the, the FBI shows up and goes, this is what you came up with guys. This is what you came up with. And you know that the two Rangers that are on duty, they failed the FBI test. You know that, right? So they wanted to be FBI because the FBI and the CIA is right around the corner training. Their training facilities are right around the corner. And these flunkies come across a vehicle, they take stuff out of it, they have to put it back in based off memory, and then they come up with these goofy ideas. You know that the FBI was giving them shit about this. Well, the 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 funny thing here is, like, so the the Rangers come out with this theory, and they kind of announce it publicly right away. And, the, and we would learn that that's kind of why they confiscated the items that they had originally found. They thought that the two had just walked away from the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, the families publicly said, look, this story makes no sense. This theory makes no sense. We're all for theories and trying to figure out what happened to our loved ones, but this story makes no sense. This is not a great theory. Well, and if you thought they went skinny dipping, why would you steal their clothes? So they then when they come back to the car that they have to drive naked? Well, and, and then, the, then the FBI finally steps in, and the FBI says, look, we discredited this theory through things we found in the investigation and by using common sense. <laughs> that was their that was their statement that they gave. So and and look, we're knocking these park rangers, but hey, we've we've talked to several park rangers that have brilliant brains. The I'm just saying that these these ones did not. Yeah, and who knows? Who knows what's going on in this situation. But the feds did set up a makeshift headquarters. Uh, and they were assigned to follow up on all leads. Now, a tides expert indicated to investigators that if the bodies had been thrown into the York River, it would take at least three days for them to surface. Mm-hmm. This is based off of the depth of the river. Now, on Thursday, one of the search boats radioed that it had found a body in the river, but the body was of a middle-aged African-American man. It turns out that this man had fell off of a boat a few days. My notes say a few days earlier, but I believe that they think that this man could have been in the river for as long as a week or two. Yeah, I believe so. Despite multiple searches using scent dogs, nets to drag the York River, and helicopters, the bodies of Keith and Sandy have never been found. They are presumed, however, to be dead. Now, I do want to bring this up because one thing that I think really hindered this investigation was when they brought in these scent dogs. Now mm-hmm. these were cadaver dogs. Mm-hmm. They were hitting on the water, indicating that they were hitting that a body was in the water. We've seen this before in other cases though. Well, the dogs were right. Mm-hmm. I mean, eventually a body was found in the river. It just right. wasn't, you know, the dogs aren't able to tell you, look, there's a body in the river. It's just but not it's the one body. you're looking for. For the first time after their disappearance, people began to wonder if this could be related to what happened to the others. Yeah. The possibility of connections among the cases was raised in the media for the first time in April of 1988. In May, the FBI offered a $10,000 reward for information on the 1986 Kathy and Becky case. Special Agent Irwin Wells acknowledged to the press 
the possibility that a serial killer was at work, but cautioned that, quote, nothing other than speculation and geography linked the cases. The families wondered, Mm -hmm. how did Keith and Sandy end up so far from the party and from their homes? The parkway was totally out of their way. It was not necessary for them to travel on the parkway. Well, it's possible that this uh, murderer picks them up anywhere. Yes. You know know what I mean? And then sees them at the party, goes, hey, hey, there's two awkward people leaving together. I'm going to take them over. Takes both of them over, murders them, takes um, Keith's vehicle and, and parks it. Well, that's to make it look like they were uh, approached at, at the parkway. Because if you're the parkway serial killer, then you know finding his truck somewhere else doesn't go with your mo. Well, and you bring up something interesting there. So, if in fact the parkway murders are all connected, my thought is if if we're going to include this double homicide of mm-hmm. Keith and Sandy along in this and say they're all linked, then the issue here is they're, these two would not have been on the parkway. I couldn't find any reason to suggest that they would have been on the parkway other than let's say things suddenly were going well on the date and they decided they wanted to park somewhere. This doesn't really make any sense though. When we review what was going on that night, We know that she had a limited amount of time to get home for curfew. Mm -hmm. They left the party with basically just enough time to get her home for curfew. They would not have traveled the Colonial Parkway to return Sandy to her home. And furthermore, both of them told several people at the party when they were getting ready to leave, I'm taking Sandy home. Oh, Mm -hmm. he's taking me home. It, It almost seems like something happened to the two of them after they left the party and between the party and Sandy's home, something happened to them. Maybe they were killed elsewhere. And then the vehicle, as you said, taken to the parkway. Maybe this indicates that the parkway is more important to the killer than the actual victims. Right. And you wonder, so in 86, we have a lesbian couple. They're murdered outside the vehicle, put back in the vehicle. They're found. 87, we have a heterosexual couple that didn't, well, they're not a couple, but they didn't didn't really know each other, but possibly Lover's Lane type thing. They're murdered roughly about a mile and a half away from the vehicle. They're found. Now we have another heterosexual couple. We don't even think that they were driving on the parkway. Somehow this vehicle is found, but we don't have any bodies found. And not really a couple. And the other thing to back up the statement that the two might not have been on the Colonial Parkway, they, both of these individuals had been rumored that at times in their life, they had told family and friends in, in recent times to Mm -hmm. these murders or disappearance anyway, that they wouldn't go to the parkway. Now -hmm. keep in mind there, there was a murder that took place in 1986, a double homicide on there. Sandy had told her sister and other family members She didn't like to travel on the parkway, would never drive on the parkway. It seems like a strange place for them to go willingly. You know what I mean? Even if they were going to park and hang out for a little bit. The the other issue here is that we have two individuals because this one feels a little different, but it's like we have two individuals that are just got out of relationships, right? So Sandy's boyfriend, Sandy's ex-boyfriend might not know that she's having a, 
not a horrible time. She's just, she misses him. Right. So they go to this party for all we know that their murder has nothing to do with the parkway and whoever killed them says, well, if I put the truck out there, they'll start trying to connect that to these other double homicides. Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing here, captain, and the sad thing here, the two of them to this very day have never been found. Make sure you check out truecrimegarage.com. Go to the store page where you can now order your pre-sale for horse people shirts and the be good, be kind, and don't litter shirts. And on that note, until tomorrow, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.